0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to have Chris Cappazzola on the show. His new book, Uncle Sam Wants You, World War One and the Making of the Modern American Citizen, has just come out from Oxford University Press. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to have Chris Capizola on the show. His new book, Uncle Sam Wants You, World War One and the Making of the Modern American Citizen, has just come out from Oxford University Press. You might remember that a couple of weeks ago we talked to Kimberly Jensen, who wrote a book on a similar topic, Mobilizing Minerva. I learned a lot during that interview, and I learned a lot during this interview as well. I hope that you do too. Here's the interview. Hi, Chris. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm doing just fine. Thank You're you. in um, sunny Boston, is that correct? Uh, yes, or indeed. someplace like that. I used to live in Boston, and I don't remember it being sunny that often, but maybe uh, that, that's just me. Our <laughs> summer, our summers are nice, actually. Yeah, no, it's quite true. I enjoyed my time there. Uh, today, uh, we're talking to Chris Capizola about his new book, Uncle Sam Wants You, World War One and the Making of the Modern American Citizen. As I said in the introduction... Um we talked to Kimberly Jensen a few weeks ago who wrote a book on a, a similar topic, or I guess I would say a related topic. So uh, I was particularly interested to have Chris on the show and um the folks at Oxford University Press, uh, who Chris should be very proud of, contacted me about the opportunity to um to interview you today. So again we're we're very appreciative that you're on the show. Um, if you could, why don't you begin by telling our um, listeners just a little bit about yourself—where you grew up, and where you went to school, and if you had mentors and that kind of thing?
1: Sure. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me on the it's show. My pleasure. And uh, yeah, I um, grew up actually in uh, upstate New York in a small town, um, and uh, you know, sort of a kind of in many ways a small, sort of um, old-fashioned American town mm-hmm. um, that uh, I think actually kind of stayed with me a little bit when I was trying to figure out. People from from an earlier generation that uh, that fought in World War One, mm-hmm. um, and then I I studied only a little bit of American history in college, and mm-hmm. I actually took a kind of detour into American history for graduate school,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and actually partly got into the whole thing because I had been a teacher. Uh, I taught seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. Is that studies. right? Wow. Yeah. That's yes,
2: that's great. That's a great experience, and, uh,
1: isn't it? It's, it's a great experience, and in fact, I probably learned more history the years <laughs> that, I was, that I was teaching it uh, yeah. uh, than than any other time. And so, uh, you know, but I also felt like I wasn't done learning history, and so that's part mm-hmm. of what got me back into into graduate school in the first place. And, and then I decided I liked the idea of, of being a history professor, mm-hmm. teaching and writing, and all that goes with it. Other things we do, yes.
0: Here at Iowa, we uh, actually empty the trash as well. So it's not uh, sure. probably yeah. different. And, at MIT. and clean up from the floods, <laughs> yeah, I guess. That's from, right, from, the floods. Yeah, flood. Who knew? Yeah. Uh-huh. And so then uh, you went on to graduate school. Who did you study with
2: there?
1: I did. I was in graduate school at, at Columbia. Uh-huh. And uh, my main advisor was Alan Brinkley, who's uh-huh. a uh, you know, very well known 20th century political historian. Uh-huh. And obviously, he influenced me a lot uh, in my own research. And particularly at this time that I was in grad school in the 1990s there were a lot of people who were looking for ways to come back uh, to political history and kind of bring questions of politics back uh, towards the center of the field. And they've always been at the center of, I think, 20th century American history.
2: Certainly.
1: Uh, But for a long time, people were um, were very interested in social history questions. And one Uh of my other main advisors there was a professor, uh, Elizabeth Blackmar, who really uh, trained me a lot in the kind of techniques and approaches of social history. Uh And, uh, you know, they both sort of... Influenced me together and kind of got me interested in the late 19th and early 20th centuries.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And then uh, the actual genesis of the book, actually, you know, I think is often the case for a lot of historians that uh, I found a footnote in another book that was very, <laughs> that was just very puzzling. And once I started researching it. Uh, Basically, I never
0: stopped. <laughs> no, I uh, I had similar experiences, and I'm sure that uh, many historians have. You know, there's always something that catches your eye or your fancy, and and pretty soon it's five years later, uh, exactly. and you're talking to publishers about some book. Um, yeah, yeah. So then, why don't we actually just begin talking about the book itself? Um, mm-hmm. One of the general theses of the book, and I'm not an American historian, uh, so pardon my ignorance. One of the theses of the book has to do with this concept um, of you call it coercive voluntarism, which I think some people might think is a kind of oxymoron, but you do a nice job of explaining what it is. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what it is in the context of American political culture and history.
1: No, sure, absolutely. It's a, it's a concept um, that – it is it, well, it's a contradiction in terms, but yeah. I think it also tells us a little something about how uh, American political culture and probably other political cultures as well work. Um, and particularly for me, the puzzle about the First World War was how – uh, such a large war mobilization effort got off the ground relatively quickly and, uh-huh. re- and without a really substantial presence for the federal government already on the ground in most communities.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And then, um, knowing that the early 20th century was a time when Americans were active in clubs and voluntary associations, I thought, well, some they must be tapping into these voluntary associations uh-huh. and. I, I went into the project thinking, you know, that that was um, that that was going to be a kind of uh, a overall pretty cheery story. Uh-huh. And then over time, I started to find actually that it was a place w- is where volunteerism was, um, was often involved a lot of arm twisting mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of sort of convincing people through um, the, the techniques of how we know other people in our communities.
2: Uh, Mm -hmm.
1: uh, to get on board with something, Mm -hmm. whether it's to buy bonds or uh, mobilize the community for for the draft or to keep an eye on suspicious people in the community, Mm -hmm. outsiders or Mm -hmm. German-Americans. And sort of one place after another, I started finding this this pattern. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. So does coercive volunteerism, is that an older aspect of American political culture? The reason I mention it is because it brings to mind a different way of looking at uh, something I think many of the listeners will be familiar with, and that is the way Tocqueville described American political mm-hmm. culture as also very voluntaristic, but he liked it a lot. He thought it was right. a great thing. He thought all this joining was a wonderful thing and it was a kind of bulwark against tyranny. But your take on it is a little different.
1: Uh, it is, absolutely. And, uh, and, in fact, I had you know sort of gone into it having read Tocqueville. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then the interesting thing was discovering that people in the early 20th century actually – Really didn't read Tocqueville very
2: much. <laughs> um,
1: but he didn't really—he
2: actually wasn't really
1: well known to Americans uh, at that time period. Um,
2: uh-huh. And
1: they they in fact, these voluntary associations were often uh, at a time when the federal government wasn't really around. Um, were actually not not always a sort of break on the tyranny of the majority, but in fact, the way that that was carried out. Um, that it you know it was often a way that the uh, dominant ideas suppressed uh, minority ideas in particular communities. Um, and voluntary associations didn't just you know sell bonds and save wheat; they also regulated and policed communities, yeah. particularly uh, in the absence of large-scale police forces that, yeah. that we know in modern America.
0: Right, which were almost everywhere absent at the time. I mean, yeah. 19th-century states in general were quite quite small. Yeah. Um, and even the ones that we think of as quite large were quite small. I study Russia, and I can tell you that the number of people running the Russian Empire in the 19th century would, uh, is, is shockingly low. Yeah. <laughs> there really were not many boots on the ground, as we like to say now, and I think the same is true of, of America, and we don't know this. The other thing that I found really interesting, in addition to coercive volunteerism in your book, was the fact that the entire apparatus, and I hadn't really thought of this before, um, of – that now protects what we call civil rights, and I think really should probably be called individual rights was was absent at the time. It just didn't exist. Could you talk a
2: little about that?
1: Yes, yeah, no, definitely that um when people sort of talked about their understanding of uh of of what they owed to the government, you know what their obligations were in wartime. Uh, those uh, they talked very much about obligations, uh, and they didn't talk as much about rights
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: as they do in the 20th century. That the historians call it the rights revolution,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that was a product partly of the, largely of the civil rights movement of the second half of the 20th century, but but even before that. Um, but notions of individual civil liberties uh personal freedom of speech were much more limited in their mm-hmm. definition uh, mm-hmm. than than they are now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh so so when we look at the at the home front during world war 1 when there obviously there was a significant uh, repression of individual liberties often it was carried out by people who didn't necessarily think that they were doing anything wrong um because they didn't have the same sensibilities about rights and civil liberties that we that we do now looking back at it Mm-hmm. So One of the things for me, you know, in doing the research on the project was trying to figure out, um, you know, what people really thought they were doing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There's a section in the book, uh, you know, uh, where I look at librarians during the First World War.
2: Mm-hmm. And, uh,
1: you know, librarians are not exactly uh, a sexy topic, but it actually turns out to be a very interesting kind of question.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And books were very important to soldiers
2: mm-hmm. for
1: obvious reasons. This was, bef- uh, you know, there were some movies that were shown... Uh, to soldiers in France, but most of what they did to entertain themselves was uh, was to read books and magazines that were sent to them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And libraries really felt that they had a kind of special obligation to express the, the war effort, um, but librarians themselves also felt they had, along with that, an obligation to eliminate dangerous ideas, to protect mm-hmm. citizens from, from mm-hmm. unpopular ideas. And that led to a lot of uh, libraries and librarians Eliminating German books from communities, uh, restricting access to, uh, to the libraries themselves, mm-hmm. uh, and participating in the dissemination of information that wasn't called propaganda at the time, but then in retrospect, I'm sure, you know, we would recognize as such.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And,
1: uh, and in, in the years since, you know, we look back at people like that and think, oh, they, they, were, they were out to suppress civil liberties. Mm-hmm. But One of my points along the way is that they, they had a different mindset.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely uh-huh. true. I, th- I think that's totally true. I- I've been studying recently the history of censorship, and it's, mm-hmm. it's only quite, at least really, in my own sort of preliminary research, it's only quite recently that uh, we have expanded the notion of freedom of the press past print and political speech. Mm-hmm. Nothing else was covered. Like I, was, I interviewed someone on the show a few weeks ago who pointed out, and I, I just didn't even realize this, that, you know, movies are not protected speech. Not even today. They're not protected speech. But we somehow have this folk notion that freedom of expression allows you to basically say or do whatever you want. But actually, that's quite a quite a modern thing. I want to I want to ask a challenging question, though. And it's this, Um, you know, if you look at the the sort of late 18th century, uh, you know, Republican doctrine uh, as captured by, let's say, the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizens or, uh, you know, um, our own Constitution, there's ample stuff in there about rights. So there's the, the genesis of rights talk um why did it take so long to come to fruition and how did it come to fruition uh,
1: no, that's a good question and i think um I think the that the best way to think about that is not is um to think about how our political culture always includes many strands uh that are woven together
2: mm-hmm.
1: so we're not always you know uh a republican society or a liberal society. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that we've actually sort of brought all of these things together at different times. So, of course, we have a rights tradition that goes back to the 18th century.
2: Mm-hmm. And, of course,
1: our sense of obligation and our sense of loyalty to groups uh, didn't disappear mm-hmm. uh, over the 20th century. Even today, we you know we still volunteer and we still think we owe things to, to one another. Uh, but, in fact, what I'm actually sort of trying to argue is not that there was a rights revolution uh, in the 20th century that replaced, a culture of obligation, but in fact, just that uh, that the the balance of the weight uh, mm-hmm. shifted a little bit. Mm-hmm. And in the early 20th century, you had a political culture that defined citizenship more around obligation, and then that then that political culture went to war.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: war, of course, is a time that brings questions of obligation to the fore, uh, whether it's military obligation of conscription or or other obligations. And so that sort of amplified this culture of obligation, but it also had the kind of effect of also amplifying uh, sense sense of of rights um, among those who saw things a different way. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. I and see. And that
2: was,
1: yes. Go ahead. Yeah.
0: No, I was going to say, yeah, that's 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 interesting. One of the things. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's. I've been reading, for example. Uh, this sort of predecessors to the ACLU, which was founded, mm-hmm. if I'm not incorrect, in the 1920s. But it had predecessors. Mm-hmm. There was something called the Free Speech Society or something. And, it, yeah. and and they all call on these sort of 18th century documents. And they're all pointing mm-hmm. right at them saying, look, 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 look. There's a kind of canonical reference to this and we should be able to do this. But the courts just aren't persuaded at all. they just like, yeah. nope, sorry. <laughs> that's not the way we're going to read that. I mean, we read it as clear as a bell. Freedom of speech is freedom of speech and that's that. But the courts yeah. at the time, these were smart people, were reading it and going, nope, that's not what it means, not at all. And yeah. you, you
2: can't do well, this, you
1: can't do that, yeah. There's a, there's a reason for that, that that goes to the progressive era, right? And the progressive era, you know, was trying to, um, you know, to bring progress to society, certain kinds of changes. And many of the legislative efforts of the progressives, in fact, had had failed in American courts precisely because of, uh, rules about individual freedom. Mm-hmm. So, for example, laws limiting the number of hours that, that workers could work
2: mm-hmm.
1: were overturned uh, on the premise that these were violations of individual liberties to work.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, and so many people who would have thought of themselves as progressive, uh, mm-hmm. forward-looking people in the 1910s, thought of individual rights language as something old-fashioned and um, Meant to undo their agendas, hmm. and in fact, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes on the on the Supreme Court uh, dismissed this notion as what he called, you know, a relic of the horse and buggy age. Hmm. And and so that's why it's all the more interesting that that people like that um, then turned uh, over the course of the 20th century to see that um, that rights talk in the realm of politics and political expression and personal expression uh, in the arts and film and drama and fields like that, Uh um, would not necessarily mean that they also had to give up the kind of um, agendas for changing economic rights uh, Uh that they were looking for. And some of this sort of comes together then in in the 1930s. Uh-huh.
0: Um, with with the New Deal. Yeah, no, I see just what you mean. That's, I, I find all that, yeah, it's a, it's a convincing way to think about it, that there are these various strands, and some of them are, are keys, and some of them are, are sort of played more loudly than or pulled harder than um, others at different points in time. That, that makes a certain amount of sense to me, because we always come back to these same texts. We just read them in strikingly different ways. Um, if I could ask you to tell us a little bit about... Um, the American Protective League, which I found a fascinating mm-hmm. part of the book. Maybe you could tell a story of that.
1: Yes, absolutely. Well, that's that's what got me started on on the uh, on the research for this book in the first place. That's the the sort of footnote there's uh, mm-hmm. in, a, in a book called Over Here by the historian David Kennedy, mm-hmm. which is a standard history of, of the First World War, and he mentioned in the footnote that there was this group called the American Protective League, uh, which had uh, 250,000 members at its peak, uh, maybe. And uh, and that they carried out, uh, they were volunteers who did sort of voluntary uh, enforcement of the draft. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading that footnote and thinking, well, this this is interesting. You know, 250,000 people who volunteered to to enforce the draft. That's got There's got to be a story there.
2: Yeah.
1: And in fact, uh, in fact, it turns out that there is. And the American Protective League was a quasi-official organization. It was started as a voluntary association, um, and it was a a men's group, um, overwhelmingly. There there were only a handful of women who participated in it, Uh, and it drew on kind of 19th century men's organizations, Mm Elks and other sort of lodges like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of its members were men who were too old to be drafted, or for other reasons they were just not going to be serving in the military, uh, but who felt... Somehow, that the that the draft, as it was passed, was not being fully enforced. Right. So remember, that Selective Service is passed in May of 1917, uh, right after the war comes in. Mm-hmm. It's not a very popular policy, uh, and for it to be enforced, it requires the voluntary registration of every man in the United States between 18 and eventually it's raised to 45. 18 to 45. Mm-hmm. And there's not a big enforcement uh, procedure. The federal uh, – what becomes the, the FBI, the, Bureau, the Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation, has only about 150 uh, agents. Mm-hmm. And uh, there isn't a really a good way of tracking the American uh, citizens either, right? Mm-hmm. This is an era before Social Security cards,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, an era before uh, – most, almost anyone carried a passport
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, before driver's licenses, before even birth certificates mm-hmm. for a lot of people, particularly if they were immigrants. And so the enforcement of the draft required a certain kind of voluntary registration. But as it was clear that uh, large numbers of people who opposed it might simply not be registering, mm-hmm. the American Protective League sort of um, formed and offered its services to the Justice Department to aid in enforcing the draft.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And they were uh, active in most parts of the country, um, almost every region of the country, and they did different things in different places. But uh, some of the most interesting things that I found them doing uh, were what were called slacker raids.
0: Yes, exactly. I wanted you to talk about those a little bit.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: and they uh, these are these are astonishing things uh, once you actually start thinking thinking about them. And a sl- uh, slacker was the kind of slang term. In the early 20th century, for a draft dodger, um, that they would have just been uh, called slackers. And um, the American Protective League decided to uh, raid, you know, go on raids to try to track down the slackers and make sure that they were uh, they had registered and that they were serving. And so, in countries all across the United States, the thousands of uh, American Protective League volunteers would organize on a particular day, usually in coordination with the municipal police or actually with um, with state uh, state militias or state home guards, and they would um, basically go through the streets of a particular town looking for and asking every man who looked like he was of draft age to show them his draft card.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, the largest one of, of them all was in New York City in September of, of 1918, um, probably about uh, 50,000 um, people particip- uh, participated from the American Protective League and from uh, other organizations. And they would particularly, obviously, uh, you know, just, they would target places where they thought they would find large numbers of draft-age men. Um, so they would go into uh, restaurants and and uh, saloons. They would go into baseball parks. Um, uh, there was uh, one in Chicago where they sort of surrounded an entire baseball uh, park during the game. Mm-hmm. And uh and the, what but what's interesting, and this is sort of what really surprised me most about it, is that the slacker rates really didn't turn up very many slackers.
0: Yeah, no, I, 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 f- I found that interesting. Why is that?
1: Um, that in fact actually <clears throat> most of the people uh who needed to register for the draft already had. Uh-huh. Um, often they were motivated by whether it's their own personal Uh, desire to serve, or they were simply motivated by a sense that that if they didn't, they might lose their job, or they might be shamed by their community, or they might be sort of called out uh, if their name wasn't on the list of registrants that was published in the local newspaper. And so, you know, often uh, the people who ended up falling through the cracks fell through the cracks not because they didn't register, but because they weren't carrying the card, or they'd registered in the wrong place. Uh, and so a lot of the, the the aspect of the draft was learning sort of how to be good, bureaucratic 20th century American citizens uh, and carry our draft cards,
2: uh-huh.
1: uh, among other things. So the draft card was the first mass-issued identity document in American history.
0: Uh-huh. No, yeah. that's, that's very interesting. What, what – um, you know, I hate to say it, but the, these um – the APL, the American Protective League, mm-hmm. reminded me of nothing more than uh, than brown shirts during the Nazi era, or, or actually the Soviets had a similar sort of thing, where they would force people. Well, there, there's a difference in the sense mm-hmm. that the, this was an organization, but it was a this was truly a volunteer organization, though, wasn't mm-hmm. it? I mean, it, the people really just joined; they were compelled to join this organization. Yeah. They, uh, yeah. So in that sense, it's more like the brown shirts than it is like the Soviet equivalents. But um, the notion that uh, you, you would press people into into service that was quote unquote voluntary. Um, that, I mean, that uh, it's it, it's it seems somewhat characteristic of the 20th century notion of voluntary assent. That is, that you mm-hmm. should give your will over to something, but you have to do it voluntarily, or it doesn't count. Could you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that? You um, see what I mean? I, that's, that's a, I
1: I do see what you mean. I mean, I do think it's. Uh, it, it is worth distinguishing, you know, that the American Protective League, although it had a loose affiliation with the Justice Department, was it never really had enforcement power
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, that any of the, you know, sort of that any organization like that um, in Germany or, or in the Soviet Union
2: had, mm-hmm. I think.
1: Um, and so it was, you know, one of the more just as interesting as the slack raids is the kind of the, the protests against them um, mm-hmm. from people who say, you know, well, I'm a good American citizen. I don't need to. I don't need to follow you, you know, where's your warrant? Mm-hmm. Uh, things like that, and debates in Congress and, and elsewhere. So I think mm-hmm. so there are some important um, distinctions
2: yeah, no, in I that sense. So,
1: yeah.
0: yeah, no, I see what you mean. Um, maybe we could talk a little bit about the way in which these, uh, what we might call the enforcement of uh, voluntary um, or of uh, coercive voluntarism uh, tended to break along ethnic lines. I thought one of the most interesting parts of the book had to do with the Mennonites in Kansas, because that's actually the area where I grew up. I'm, okay. not, I'm not a Mennonite myself, but you would mention towns, and I'd say, I've been there. I know people there.
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> um, the Mennonites are still there, and they're doing just fine.
2: Uh, yeah. maybe,
0: maybe you could talk a little bit about the Mennonites and actually the Germans in the United States at the time.
1: Yes, absolutely. And uh, and I guess uh, one of the things I should do is include in that is the sort of uh, – uh a little bit of praise and thanks to uh to the Mennonite historians, um, who over the years, um, particularly at uh, Bethel, College, yeah, in Bethel North, College North North Newton, Kansas yeah, have that's right. have done a really phenomenal job in, in recording and making available uh interviews and letters and testimonies and, uh, uh-huh. and and they've been putting a lot of them on their website as well, so other people who wanna kind of do some more research um, you know, can really get a really rich um Set of uh, sources for not for all kinds of questions, uh-huh. not just in terms of religious history, but uh-huh. really just how a yeah. community, how a farming community works. Uh-huh. Um, but the uh, I, I write about the Mennonites in part uh, for their uh, sit, their particular situation as conscientious objectors, right? And so you know, you, if you have two people who have two conflicting obligations, their obligation to the state and their obligation uh, to their religion. Um, those conflicts have to be worked out in, mm-hmm. in the time of war. And this was uh, probably, World War One was probably the worst time in American history to be a conscientious objector, uh, that even in the 19th century, um, there had been much, in many ways much more protections and exemptions uh, than there were in World War One, And then later, in, a, in World War Two and Vietnam, uh, exemptions were for. Religious uh, objectors, particularly if they were formerly members of the church, was actually much more standardized than it was uh-huh. in the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Mennonites uh, had it extra hard because uh, although they weren't actually German, uh, most, almost all the Mennonites who were living in places like Kansas had been either born in the United States. Or actually had been born in in, in Russia
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, to sort of uh, German speaking and German heritage organizations. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, they were German speaking, um, and they were outsiders in these communities, and they were uh, very frequently targeted for scrutiny, uh, for investigation, mm-hmm. uh, and some and sometimes for violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, because just sort of imagine if you're living in a in a community uh, where the draft has come in, and uh, you know takes especially if you're a rural farming community in central Kansas, and the draft comes in and takes, uh, you know, sort of all the young men,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: except it doesn't take the Mennonite men, who mm-hmm. are German-speaking, mm-hmm. and who are farmers, and mm-hmm. this is a time when farmers, actually, there's an enormous agricultural boom,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and so there's all kinds of tensions because these farmers now uh, are making a lot of money, mm-hmm. because, and uh, and so a lot of ongoing tensions within communities uh, play out, and actually become quite quite violent uh that central Kansas is one of the most violent places
2: mm-hmm. uh
1: on the court, during the course of the war, and the mennonites uh, responded with some hesitation because they they felt they needed to protect themselves, but protecting themselves meant entering formal politics and participating in worldly ways that many uh that many Mennonites would object to mm-hmm. Uh, but over time, they learned they sort of learned how to do that, mm-hmm. uh, and they sort of fought for for that. And the conscientious objectors were never very many, never more than a few hundred. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nevertheless, they uh, they were or a few thousand, excuse me. Mm-hmm. They were actually sort of some of the most talked about mm-hmm. of American citizens, mm-hmm. and I thought that was really quite interesting that. Their story was a way for Americans you know many of whom never met a conscientious objector in their lives mm-hmm. to nevertheless try to figure out well what exactly does it mean to have a draft mm-hmm. in our society you know mm-hmm. uh, and how do we how do we reconcile that with our other our other obligations our mm-hmm. other senses and of,
0: of and how specifically did the conscientious uh, Objector which is an odd term I must say. Because yeah. <laughs> really it, it goes clang against the ear. Uh, uh conscientious objector. How did the actual term in the legislation itself come about? Because it didn't exist prior to World War One. Uh
1: it did not. There were some I mean, there were some exemptions um, in eighteenth and nineteenth century communities, um, but the term actually uh originates from objector objectors to vaccination. Mhm. Uh, which was something I discovered um, only by looking the term up in the dictionary Mm -hmm. um, in its its etymology, Mm -hmm. The 19th century laws requiring vaccination, of Mm -hmm. course. Also, there were people who refused that. And uh, and then the term was applied in in the U.S., and the first draft law included an exemption for people who could demonstrate that they were members of what were called historic peace churches. Mm -hmm. And many of these are still around, uh, Mennonites, Amish, Mm -hmm. uh, Quakers, and others um and the law basically said, "Well, those people should still register, and they should still go to a military camp if they're drafted, but the, President Wilson will figure some, out something else for them to do,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: the law didn't say what that what that was mm-hmm. um, and so many people registered as conscientious objectors, uh, and if they were officially members of churches, they you know, they had some abilities. But, of course, many uh, churches in the early 20th century weren't very good at keeping records, mm-hmm. and, you know, necessarily recording their members, knowing exactly what they believed, you know, particularly for sort of small, um, you know, whether they were uh, pietistic or whether they were particularly uh, evangelical. You know, mm-hmm. there, it may be, have been just a set of individual beliefs. People who individually believed uh, in you know, pacifism, often had a very hard time
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: demonstrating that they that they should be exempted.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: then, where things got particularly complicated was this was this requirement that conscientious objectors should still go to military camps when drafted.
0: Yes, I found that very interesting. We'll give you the status of a conscientious objector, and then we're going to send you to an army camp if you're drafted.
1: Yeah, that, that, in, that, that
0: puts you in an yeah. odd situation.
1: Yes, and it puts you in a lot of it, it, it's a it's a very serious test for a lot of, of people. and uh, Remember, a lot of these are 18-year-old young men who, some of whom are very well trained in their churches, some of whom are, are not,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and certainly all of them are separated from their their home communities and their, their home ministers or other religious leaders, um, and they're under enormous amounts of pressure from other draftees um, who look at these conscientious objectors and they see they see treason. They see unmanliness. They see uh, yeah. you know. They see all kinds of problems, and they and they and they tell them that. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. And
1: many conscientious objectors, uh, you know, arrived in camp as C.O.s and and left with uniforms on.
0: Yeah. No. Exactly. I think the the, the majority of them did, didn't they?
1: Uh, I'm, the I'm, over- I'm... the overwhelming majority.
0: Yeah. No. That's things, that's, uh, that's uh,
1: probably you know at least three quarters.
0: Yeah. That's that's very interesting. Um, Maybe you could tell us a little bit about a kind of related question, and that is the the notion of the enemy alien, which just Mm -hmm. simply sounds like something out of science fiction, doesn't it? It really sounds uh, horrendous. That one doesn't go clang against the ear, but it makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. Um, What were enemy aliens, and how did the legislation in the category come about?
1: Yes, the uh, enemy aliens are people who are citizens of the nations with which the United States is at war. Um, And for all practical purposes in the First World War, that, that means Germany.
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: That we were, of course, also at war with the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but um, most of the people in the U.S. who were citizens of the Austro-Hungarian Empire tended to be also opponents of that regime. They were members of minority ethnic groups
2: like Mm -hmm. Czechs Mm -hmm. uh,
1: and and so forth. Um, And uh, and the United States never actually declared war on the Ottoman Empire, Mm -hmm. Um, so that was kind of a non-issue. But the, so you have a, a substantial number of, of German citizens in the United States, uh, and then of course also larger German American communities, people who've mm-hmm. been here for a generation or more. Um, uh, but it was it, the regulation of them really begins with with the citizens of Germany, um, and this is prompted by international law. All of the powers of World War One did this to to enemies, and there were regulations that required them to. Register sometimes regulations on their movement and Mm -hmm. so forth. America's law for regulating enemy aliens actually dates all the way back to 1798. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in fact, actually, rather than passing a new law, we dusted off an old one um, that goes all the way back to the Alien and Sedition Acts uh, of of the Adams administration. Mm -hmm. Um, And we set up a series of regulations for where uh, enemy aliens could and couldn't go, um whether they could uh, maintain firearms, um, what kinds of jobs they could get uh, and so forth
2: mm-hmm.
1: and there was a, some discussion and really substantial and in fact actually serious discussion about whether to intern all german uh, citizens mm-hmm. uh, in some sort of internment
2: camps mm-hmm. uh,
1: now this is a story that um that mo- al- that almost no one knows <laughs> about the United States during the first world War. And uh, it's hard to tell the story um, without the Second World War sort of casting a shadow over it,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? Uh, and so the, this, these were these were not like uh, the plan was not for something like what happened to the Japanese in mm-hmm. the Second World War, uh, who were interned regardless of their their citizenship,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: included both Japanese Americans and, and Japanese citizens.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: In World War One, there was a sort of investigation. There was a plan. Uh, a series of, sort of experts went down to Washington to present their plans, and they thought about how much it would cost. They, uh, the Wilson administration the cabinet discussed it in a cabinet meeting, uh, and several members of the cabinet supported uh, large-scale internments of what would probably have been tens of thousands of people.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, eventually, it didn't happen, um, partly because there was um, not enough interest in it from the War Department, uh, which were the people who were going to have to run it and going to have to pay for it, mm-hmm. and they were at that moment really um, worried about how they were going to pay for their own soldiers, let mm-hmm. alone uh, take care of others. Um, but I, it was a telling, um, it just it sort of shows that it was on people's mind, and it was a real surprise for me to read. Um, you know, I kind of came across these things uh, in the archives and sort tucked away in a few different libraries, the plans. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I was really sort of shocked to to see them.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: I was somewhat familiar with them in the sense that um, having studied, as I say, Russia, mm-hmm. um, Russia did a lot of this kind of thing during World War One, um, mm-hmm. that is, segregating, classifying, and segregating uh, populations. The, the Germans did it as well. I, I can't speak for the, the French or the British, but it was a reasonably yeah. common thing to do. The notion that uh, if you had uh, people of quote unquote, foreign extraction in your country and you were at war with their country of birth or of origin, that they should be uh, somehow surveilled or locked up was, I think, an extraordinarily common one at the time. I think it was I think we could even say it was common sense to those people that they should be watched very carefully. Um, This uh, it it. This this level of suspicion toward German Americans or Germans, I guess, as we could actually call them, not as the German national, uh, had 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 interesting effects. One of them that you point out in your book uh, that I'd like you to talk about a little bit is the the, the cultural effect. I mean, it it um, it ended, I don't know if it ended, but um, it certainly changed German American culture very quickly in a very short period of time. Yeah. Maybe you could talk a little about
1: that. No, that is absolutely true, and I think um, that one of the most interesting sort of facts uh, that I came across along the way was that in 1915, about one quarter of high school students in the United States took German in in high school, and by 1922, only one percent
2: did. Right,
1: and it stayed at that percent um, basically ever ever since. Uh Um, And that was just a sign for a larger. Network of German cultural organizations,
2: yeah.
1: um, in voluntary associations, political societies, uh, shooting clubs, singing yeah. clubs—you uh, know, sort of, you name it. Newspapers, uh, schools—you uh, know, some of the largest experiments in bilingual education in American history were in German schools yeah. in, the, in the early 20th century. And it is certainly the case that uh, that cultural life was declining as German immigrants uh, were assimilating into American culture, Uh broadly speaking. Um, That rates of immigration from Germany were going down, uh, and that German culture would not have stayed that vibrant forever. Uh, Particularly, you know, if we look at what 20th century, all kinds of immigrant ethnic cultures uh, declined in the the early 20th century as people tried to be Mm -hmm. more and more American as they understood it. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, what actually happens in the war is a dramatic uh, and drastic assault on German not just sort of German culture in terms of you know German music and German literature, although that's obviously that that's targeted. but as I tried to explain in the book, that's actually an assault on german American voluntary association mm-hmm. uh, and political culture,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right and at a time when voluntary associations are the central Mechanisms whereby people participate in public life—that mm-hmm. uh, an assault on German American singing clubs is actually an assault on on the German American community and mm-hmm. their political and public public power, broadly speaking. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I, I found it really interesting because actually, having lived in both Kansas and um, and in Boston, where you are right now, I mean, I know just to take the second case, there are. Um, scattered all over sort of Cambridge and Somerville and Boston, there are still ethnic clubs. There are Italian-American clubs. There are Portuguese clubs in Cambridge itself. Um, there are, um, there are uh, as I said, there, there are Armenian clubs. in in. Uh, I mean, I've seen them and been to some of them uh, in these areas. And none of that exists anymore in Kansas. All of the, there's no German, I, I mean, maybe there. I, I never encountered one when I was growing up. There's no German-American club. There are no German restaurants, really. Um, nobody brands themselves as German anymore, I think. And mm-hmm. do you think that's a result of, of this moment?
1: Um, I would say that, that, is, that this moment is the, the number one reason why, mm-hmm. why that happened, um, that just because so many of the organizations that were like that um, disappeared
2: mm-hmm. during,
1: during the war. That things that would have sustained that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, clubhouses and uh, newspapers and right. uh, things, and things like that.
0: But it's very odd. Nobody uh, says. Nobody says. I'm sorry to interrupt, but nobody says okay. these days. You know, my, my friend Francesco Isolani, uh, who will be glad to hear his name mentioned. Um, he's an Italian American, and will just say so, even though his people have been here forever. But I'm sort of quasi of German extraction, but I never think of myself as a German American, and I don't know anybody who right. does. I mean, but I'm I'm yeah. sure I'm surrounded by them here in the Midwest.
1: I'm sure yeah. they're all over the place. Yeah.
0: But nobody says I'm a German American.
1: Well, yes, and there are and there are these organizations, of course. And uh, but one, there are a couple other things to you, you know remember. Part of it is that uh, it's not just the first war, but of course the second yes. that makes it sort of uh, yeah. impolitic. That but the yeah, other thing, right. one other thing to remember, though, is remember that most uh, immigrants uh, who arrived in the United States speaking German weren't necessarily "quote unquote" German. Yes,
0: that's so right. many
1: of them came uh, before Germany was unified, mm-hmm. and they, their strongest identities would have been to a particular region, Bavaria,
2: yeah.
1: or, or wherever. And, and so, um, you no, know, so it's, a, it's an identity, they might national identity, they might not have claimed in quite the same quite the same way.
0: Yeah, and with all due respect to my German friends, German food isn't really that good. So it's okay, you know. Yeah. I, I'll <laughs> say it's okay. I'll eat the occasional wurst or something. Um, but uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about the way in which um, coercive volunteerism affected uh, two groups we haven't talked about yet, mm-hmm. that is women and African
1: Americans. Mm-hmm. You could start with yeah. women. Okay, yes. And uh, it's one of the things that's, that's of course, remarkable about uh, the home front during the war is that this is a time when the central way that people uh, discuss their obligations, the most important obligation uh, that one can offer as a citizen during wartime is military service uh, and that's an avenue that is just not open to very many women. Uh, Mm -hmm. There were a few thousand women who volunteered in various forms uh, Mm -hmm. for the military but the draft of course didn't draft women Mm -hmm. But then, it, then the question still remained: Well, what is the obligation of a woman citizen during during wartime? Mm-hmm. Um, and women were asked to do many things um, that included, you know, some things that we sort of we sort of know from uh, wartime posters or uh, stories, whether it's knitting socks for soldiers or saving food. Um, and over time, historians never really took those very seriously. Um, they thought, well, uh, those were really just uh, ways of making people feel like they were sort of participating in the home front. Mm-hmm. But in fact, um, you know, the fact of the matter is that uh, the, the creation at home of millions of garments uh, at a time when, in fact, most garments were constructed in mm-hmm. in homes,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, you know, this is when, you know, there aren't real factories, clothing Mm -hmm. factories, That a lot of work is done in what's called homework, Mm -hmm. um, in tenements and elsewhere, Mm -hmm. Uh, that, you know, in fact, actually, the kind of knitting and sewing that people did actually was really substantial
2: Mm -hmm.
1: uh, and central to, uh, but it also required the mobilization of a substantial amount of unpaid labor. Mm -hmm. And this is where I think volunteerism uh, for early 20th century women is particularly worth sort of stopping and thinking about, well, what is it that, what does it mean to volunteer, Right. Often when we use the word volunteer, we we mean, well, it's voluntary because it's not required,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? And that's really how people talked about it a lot at the time. But something that's voluntary, we also think that it means it's unpaid,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? Uh, and, of course, uh, women historically have done a lot of labor without getting paid for mm-hmm. it, um, and particularly in the, in the early 20th century. hmm uh, and so mobilizing women as volunteers was also a way to mobilize women's unpaid labor,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, whether that's in, in uh, areas of, of food and, and clothes or, or mm-hmm. even just maintaining military families while husbands uh, or, and fathers are away
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, is a significant amount of work.
2: Mm-hmm. And one of
1: the other things that I looked at was that coercive volunteerism, of course, is not just a, a, a male phenomenon.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the slackerades raids were were a male phenomenon they were you know targeted men and the people who were doing the targeting were almost exclusively men
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and you don't have spectacular events like that uh, that targeted women
2: mm-hmm.
1: but in fact, actually you do have less spectacular events that uh, that reflected just the different ways that men and women moved through moved through cities and towns in mm-hmm. the early 20th century. So one thing that I write about uh, are what were called the Hoover food pledges. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, and this was named after Herbert Hoover, yeah, who,
2: yeah.
1: whose job at that point was to mobilize the U.S. Food Administration.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the food pledge uh, was, at, was uh, every woman in America who, uh, was asked to sign this, saying that she would save food for the war effort. Mm-hmm. And the signatures were collected in particular communities by groups of women volunteers. Probably mm-hmm. about 500,000 women were uh, volunteer sort of collectors of signatures and pledges
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, for the Food Administration, and they went from house to house visiting particular communities uh, asking for food pledges uh, and signatures, and in many ways, I, I would argue that that did a lot of the same work as the Flacker Raid,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, it was a way of sort of uh, mm-hmm. kind of face-to-face uh, way of telling people to, to get on board, uh, to, to do their part. Uh, and I came across all kinds of interesting stories of people who who didn't didn't care to be visited.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, rumors went around that oh, you know, you're going to have to turn over all of your food. Um, you know, and this is a time when people would can large numbers of goods for the winter, mm-hmm. right? And so it was a serious concern. You know, well, I don't want to have to turn over all of my canned goods. What are we going to eat this winter?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so that was that led to some to some protests, to some to some concerns, and uh, and and conflicts in communities all across the
0: country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember when I was talking to Kim Jensen about her book, um, Mm -hmm. you know, that that some of these groups, uh, and I'm thinking of nurses and doctors, female nurses and doctors who, uh, they they weren't called up, but they they found themselves participating, let's put it in in that way, in the war effort, that some of them actually lobbied for, uh, well, obviously they lobbied for um, the franchise, but they also lobbied, for example, for officer status, uh, mm-hmm. For actually, sort of what they really wanted, it was kind of interesting, what they really wanted was not a special status, but just some status, mm-hmm. period, end of story. You know, they just wanted to yeah. be in the army, which is, a—I mean, from our perspective, a bizarre thing. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That's really what they wanted. They wanted to be in yeah. the army, and the army said no. <laughs> the army ended up saying no.
1: No, it's true. My fa- <laughs> One of my favorite sort of stories is that uh, there was a phrase at the time during the war of uh, what were called dollar-a-year men. And these are often sort of corporate executives and, and people like that who went to Washington uh, for the token salary of a dollar a year and they worked for the war effort. Uh-huh. Um, but, and there were you know, actually hundreds, probably thousands of leading women, uh, you know, heads of major women's organizations, who also moved to Washington and also worked on behalf of the war effort.
2: Uh-huh. Um,
1: but they didn't even get $1. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and uh, so it just it sort of goes to show uh yeah. that even when you're volunteering, right? And yeah. even when you say, you know, you're doing it for for nothing, uh yeah. you know, yeah. that $1 yeah. was uh, was was
0: not there no i think it's a a very good point because really what they wanted was just a certain amount of recognition for what they were doing and uh they were refused it uh again and again which i i found uh sort of remarkable and kim's book is very good i would recommend it to anybody oh yeah let's let's talk a little bit about um african-americans then how did they Mm -hmm. respond or participate in coercive volunteerism
1: yeah well the um one of the most interesting sort of Questions that emerges during the war is how the how the draft is uh, is going to affect African American communities, and there is in the public record. uh, If you look in at the the speeches of leading black figures, if you read the the African American press, uh, if you look in in you know sort of visible public places, you will find almost no um, objection. Mm-hmm. To to the draft, almost no uh, objection to the war during the war, and of course, in many ways, this is most famously captured uh, by W.E.B. Du Bois's editorial in the Crisis, uh, the magazine of the NAACP, where he urges African Americans to quote close ranks, mm-hmm. right to sort of set aside our com- our concerns for now, show our that we're on board with the war effort and be rewarded uh, in turn.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now. Um, you know, what any good historian will tell you is, well, you, you, if you are just reading the public record, you're, you're not reading enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and in fact, once you sort of dig uh, deeper into this, you find that there are tensions in various communities about uh, about, particularly in sort of the rural South. Uh, and this is a time when when African-Americans uh, are overwhelmingly in the South uh, and overwhelmingly in the rural parts of the South. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh,
1: and particularly how the draft is going to affect African-American mm-hmm. Labor uh, mm-hmm. and labor markets in the South. Um, and in fact, many uh, sort of the landed, uh, sort of prosperous white farmers in the South uh, actually opposed the draft, opposed the war mobilization because they didn't want to lose African American workers.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: but the draft also has an enormous effect on uh, African Americans as they do start in small numbers to move northward. And this is the period known uh, as. As the Great Migration, mm-hmm. uh, in its size, it's nowhere near as big as World War II, but mm-hmm. in its significance, it was enormous. Uh, and that many of the the things that happened in uh, the Harlem Renaissance and, and Chicago has its own version uh, uh, in the 1920s happened because the populations of African Americans in those communities um, boomed during during the war. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that uh, you know we sort of know that story, but one of the things that we never really stopped to think about was well, how do some, you know, how do some very poor people uh, who live in some of the most cash poor parts of the country actually buy their train tickets to go north to Chicago mm-hmm. or Philadelphia or where else? And uh, the sort of short answer to that question is what's called uh, uh, allotments.
2: Mm-hmm. That
1: an allotment requires that uh, whenever any American soldier was drafted, Half of his salary went directly to yeah. his uh, to his wife uh, mm-hmm. or or dependent of some sort uh, in cash, mm-hmm. right? And so, sort of enormous cash transfers uh, start transforming the South for its poorest people, both white and black.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and in fact, actually, that's one of the engines of transformation uh, mm-hmm. in which uh, uh, of of the South in the 20th century.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. I my impression though is that uh, World War One um, mm-hmm. Did not bring African Americans uh, any of the hoped for—I'm uh, hesitant to call them civil rights—but any of the hope for respect that they thought they might receive as a result of service. Am I wrong about that?
1: Uh, no, I'm afraid—I'm afraid to say that—that that you are correct. <laughs> yeah. uh, and in fact, actually, you know, once you uh, start reading deeper into uh, the correspondence of African Americans uh, and uh, and their own, you start to see some very bitter reactions. To, to the kinds of, of positions that, that people like Du Bois took in close mm-hmm.
2: ranks, yeah.
1: um, and of course within a short amount of time after the war, even Du Bois himself basically uh, disavowed it and and regretted uh, the, the the position that he'd taken, mm-hmm. um, and in large part because the war um, brought all kinds of outsiders under scrutiny. Uh-huh. Uh, and in fact, uh, you know, any kinds of uh, statements or questions, challenges to the status quo, could be investigated or challenged as "quote pro-German,"
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and often there was nothing German about them. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, a, a strike by a group of sharecroppers in in the middle of of the Delta, in sure. Mississippi, could be described as pro-German. Could be thought to be the work of uh, yeah. German espionage. And African Americans, uh, and this is sort of gets back to what I was saying, that the, the African American press was, of all the ethnic groups, probably the most outspokenly uh, loyal to the war effort. But it was also the one that was the most under the most scrutiny. Yeah. Uh, and that the Bureau of Investigation
2: uh,
1: mm. scrutinized uh, the black press. It, it uh, uh, BFI agents uh, personally visited. The editors of almost every significant mm. black newspaper, uh, mm. you know, sort of paid calls on them um, in ways that did not formally restrict their papers, um, but nevertheless uh, made it clear to their editors that they were under under close watch.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's very interesting. I had the opportunity to interview a fellow named Colin Grant who wrote what is an excellent book. It's on, it's on the site called A Negro with a Hat. It's a it's about Marcus Garvey, and Marcus Garvey was mm-hmm. not one of the people that said that that uh, that. Um, that African Americans should uh, necessarily cooperate. I mean, he he was Correct. he was proven right basically in his in his uh, he because he uh, if I recall correctly he more or less said we're not going to get anything from this. And he had – I don't know if he said this or somebody said this, but you know in response to uh, uh, Wilson saying we need to make the world safe for democracy, either Garvey or somebody said how about if we make Georgia safe for black people yeah. <laughs> Or we do that? Which well, I – yeah.
1: Yes, and Garvey uh, actually sort of does some of the first organi- organizing in New York uh, that you know the, that the Garveyites do is in 1917.
2: Yeah, that's um, exactly right and of here. course
1: there's and right after the war, 1919 is the is in many ways the, the one of the worst years for African Americans in terms of uh, violence, uh, in terms of the restriction on black organizations, yeah. uh, the number of race riots. It's also one of the years in which uh, membership in uh, African-American political organizations boomed, mm-hmm. um as African-Americans um, sort of come back from the war, many of them um, uh, disappointed w- uh, with the outcome of that they're seeing around them, determined to, to change that. Mm-hmm. So the NAACP itself um, uh, expands dramatically, particularly in the South, mm-hmm. where it had almost not existed before the yeah. war. Yeah. Uh, and then other groups. Um, Gar- Garvey's group uh obviously expands dramatically right after the war. Um, and some of the sort of more radical groups yeah. of African Americans that surround A. Philip Randolph and others. Yeah, also. A. Philip
0: Randolph, exactly right. Uh, yeah.
1: But a lot of that really happens just after the war and in reaction to the really disastrous events.
0: Yeah, the, the history of the NAACP is, is fascinating. This is a bit of a digression, but another thing that I learned um, by reading um, A Negro with a Hat is uh, at one point uh, Gar- when Garvey gets to New York during the war, he, he goes to the, what he is told as the offices of the NAACP, but he's very confused and he later reports that he didn't, he left, he didn't think it was the NAACP because there were no black people working there. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Which tells you something about the NAACP's origin, I think. Um, let me uh, ask you, uh, uh, just, uh, your book um, ends with a discussion of the surveillance state. Um, mm-hmm. How do you conceive of that and its origins? What exactly is it?
1: Um, well, the surveillance state is both a thing and a and a way of, and a way of being, um, uh, a way of being an American citizen. And in the book, the actual thing, the surveillance state uh, that I talk about, is a discussion of particular institutions within the federal government um, mm-hmm. that have to do with regulating uh, immigrants, mm-hmm. in particular. Um, and the war sees an expansion of power of the federal government to to regulate and also to deport. Uh, non-citizens mm-hmm. based on their ideas and their membership in different organizations.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, uh, so immigrants are one, and then the other uh, is in the Justice Department in the Bureau of Investigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that one of the things that uh, was interesting to me is that all of these uh, German enemy aliens who had to register uh, had to send their forms in to the to the Justice Department, mm-hmm. and many of those forms were processed. By uh, J. Edgar Hoover, right, yes. who was just right. getting his, just getting his stuff <laughs> yeah it's a terrific part right. of the book yeah. and uh, so obviously the war uh, and the, the practice experience of regulating and keeping watch on the, on people who are defined by law as enemies mm-hmm. uh, is important and, it, and those institutions don't disappear they aren 't dismantled after the war mm-hmm. many many wartime organizations. Are you know mm-hmm. the United States takes over the railroad industry, but then it, it you know, it privatizes it again. Mm-hmm.
2: But these yeah.
1: but these state surveillance institutions do continue after the 1920s, largely because of the the Red Scare, right? Mm-hmm. And, and with the Russian Revolution, mm-hmm. the sort of uh, concerns in the United States uh, about about subversion
2: continue.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, uh, I found that part of the book quite fascinating because it's something that I've been writing about myself, and uh, you know, I, I think people would be shocked. Uh, if they went, could go back 150 years and, and, and to see actually that but most of, I don't know about most Americans but many Americans never had any contact whatsoever with the federal government. <laughs> they just didn't even practically know it was there. I'm thinking of my sort of own, my own people who went to uh, you know, who went to Kansas. I mean, in, insofar as they staked their claims, the claims had to be registered, uh, mm-hmm. and then of course they were probably members of uh, various political organizations, school boards, and that kind of stuff. But other than that. I don't know if they had any contact with uh, the federal government, or the federal government had any contact with them. So I thought it was very interesting, and I, and I think, uh,
2: that,
0: yeah, I think one of the things, you know, it's a it's, it's, it's huge, huge burst of state power with World War One all over the world. That yeah. the states become much larger, and they don't. There, go ahead.
1: There, there is, there is. But one of the things that I, that I try to explain in the book is uh, that it's not just about sort of state institutions getting bigger, but it's also about mindsets and um, just ways of, yeah. of being and acting. Yeah, no. And so because a lot of times when historians have looked at World War One, they've said, well, yes, the government federal government gets much bigger very quickly, and then it gets much smaller,
2: uh-huh.
1: right? And so you know, uh, so literally on the morning of November eleventh, uh, nineteen eighteen, when the armistice is signed, the troop trains, you know, literally turn around on the track and uh-huh. start bringing the soldiers home. Yeah, uh, because there's so much uh, pressure to dismantle these large government institutions uh-huh. that many Americans were were wary about.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, and so many historians have said, well, you know, look, it it just wasn't really that important. But part of what I'm trying to do in the book, by looking at both political institutions and political culture, is to try to see, well, what about the experiences and mindsets, the, the memories of this. And even just the different ways that people act because they know now that states can regulate them. Yeah. And how we act, you know, how, and, and, or even how people act when they know that they they can make certain kinds of claims on the state.
0: Yeah, I see what you're saying. It's, a, it's, a, it was an important precedent. I, I, I certainly grant you that. And I think you're right. Actually, it has a, kind of echo today in, um, and people in a hundred years will be able to date this uh, interview because of the following reference, uh, you know, w- the way we talk about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, both of which are in trouble, um, they're nominally private institutions that sort of have the backing of, you know, t- in some sense, the, the federal government. But, you know, the the idea that the government would allow them to fail is is not even really being discussed. It's just taken for granted that that they can't be allowed to fail, but nobody explains exactly why. And okay. I think it's because the the federal government is in the business and has been for almost 100 years of bailing things out. And I don't know if it was in the business of that before, but the, there were there are precedents. I can even remember in my own experience, will date me, is that you know the federal government bailed out New York at one point. The federal okay. government bailed out Chrysler at one point. And so why wouldn't it bail out? Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac at some point. I mean, the and I think you're absolutely right. The apparatus, which is necessary to do these things really doesn't exist right now. We have to create institutions to bail these, you know, to bail Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac out. But the yeah, mindset, well, the mindset yeah. is definitely there that we can I, do this. I think
1: yeah. that is, yeah, that is true. Although just, as a point of correction, the federal yeah, government didn't actually really bail out New York. Oh, really? Uh, no, that the that the city that the city uh, workers' unions actually uh, took the biggest hit on that by okay. buying the city bonds. And but there was a sort of similar public-private partnership set uh-huh. up, uh, something called Big Mac, uh-huh. uh, which which did a lot of it. But in fact, actually, Big Mac was only really created because the federal government. Refused, and that's uh-huh. the origin of that Uh-oh. famous uh,
2: oh, that right? Gerald
1: Ford headline, Ford to City Drop Dead.
0: Yeah, Ford to City Drop Dead. it's no, right. exactly right. Um, Do you remember yeah. that now? Well, I stand corrected. No, I, I, I sit to, corrected right I used to now. live in New York. No, really we get we get, right. uh, <laughs> we get sensitive about, about yeah. the 70s. Sorry about that. I know it was a, it's a great era for film in New York. It's a different story. Um, <laughs> anyway, Chris, thanks very much. We've, we really appreciate you being on the show today, and you, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I'm going to close the interview with our traditional question. Um, what are you working on now?
1: Um, well, I am uh, deep into the middle of a new project that is on uh, once again on sort of questions of citizenship and military service, but now I'm interested in uh, in the Philippines, mm-hmm. and the book is actually a history of uh, Filipino soldiers who serve in the U.S. military and Americans who serve uh, in the military in the Philippines,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it starts in 1898 uh, in the war in the in Spanish-American War and goes actually all the way up to the present.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, sort is like a big, fantastic project.
1: a big uh, sweeping history of two countries and a whole century, and uh, I yeah. hope it will be fun to read. No, I mean the
0: Philippines is. I think the Philippines is extraordinary interesting because it's one place actually Americans really tried imperialism and then kind of didn't like it very much. <laughs> I don't know. We we got there and we sort of toyed with it and then we said, no, I don't think this is really working out for us. But I think it's a terrific project, and you have to promise to be on the show when you're done with the book.
1: I be, which I'd be happy. W-
0: which will be next year. Which means, no. I say, it means I have to promise <laughs> to finish the book. Yeah, exactly. Good enough. Well, Chris, thanks very much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Chris Capizzola about his book Uncle Sam You: World War One and the Making of the Modern American Citizen. It's just come out from Oxford University Press. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. We'll talk to you next week.